This is my passport. This summer I've had to show it a few times on my travels, and I'm sure some of you have been traveling around with your passport as well. Each of us have probably been asked the question this summer, citizenship? And you pull this out and you show your picture. I've signed it too. This is my certificate of baptism, signed by my pastor in the year 1982, and by two witnesses who heard my confession of faith. It too vouches for my identity. I have dual citizenship. They both shape who I am and what my values are, my commitments, loyalties. But when they come into conflict, this trumps this. With baptism, I confess Jesus as Lord of Lord, King of Kings. That's political language. The citizenship in my baptismal certificate certainly obliges me to work hard for the shalom, for the peace and good goodness of my community and for my fellow citizens. But at times there are conflicts. And when there's a conflict, this trumps this. I'm going to share a little bit from our reading in Matthew, make a few connections to the Colossians text, and tell you a little story about what happened in our community with our faith uh, community in Stouffville in the last year. Matthew 16 is very much this kind of an issue, an issue of identity. It takes place in Caesarea Philippi. Now, for those of you who have been to Israel, that's right at the north end. And many of the tours that go to Israel take you there. And it's a very different place. It's only about 30 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. But there's water there. Lots of things grow there. It's refreshing. The text tells us that Jesus and his disciples were first in Tyre and Sidon. So that's on the Mediterranean, Tyre, today Lebanon. And there's a road that goes all the way to Damascus in Syria. And it cuts through this place, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus and his disciples were traveling in a very foreign land. Where's your passport? Um, It had a different language, a different culture, and a very different religious atmosphere. At that time already, it was a very ancient uh, town. Why? Because it had water. It had lots of water. Out of the rocks comes so much water that this is the main source for the Jordan River. And so in Abraham's time, there was, it was a site of Baal worship. So Baal was a fertility god, a god who was thought to bring fertility to the land through the waters. When the Greeks came to occupy the region, it was the god Pan who was worshipped. He would enter into Hades, the rocks there, there was a cleft. Pan would enter into Hades every fall and return in spring to bring life, life-giving waters and fertility to the land. And then under Roman rule, Herod the Great built a temple here, a temple to the emperor Caesar Augustus. Here sacrifices were made to an emperor who was considered a deity. Herod's son, Philip, gave 
this place its name. And you might remember, it's a complicated family genealogy, but this Philip, his wife, Herodias, was the one whom John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist talked to his wife about what is lawful and what is unlawful, and she had him imprisoned, and eventually her daughter had John the Baptist's head uh, on a platter. So this is, this is the place. It was a wealthy, bustling, pagan, Roman city, a center of earthly power for the region. It was situated on a key Roman road, and it hosted an impressive array of temples to any number of gods. Sacrifices could be made here to the god Pan. Public sexual fertility rites involving animals and humans were part of the scene, and as well, a temple to pay homage to Caesar Augustus. So you can imagine, for a Jew to come into this region, it's about as heathen as it gets. Very foreign territory. When Jesus enters into this region with, the, with his disciples, he is no doubt profoundly aware of his political context, as is the gospel writer. So he picks up on the, on the word rock again, and we'll say, Peter, on this rock I'll build my church. He picks up on the word Hades again in the, in, in the text. And Matthew, as you remember, he's very politically aware as well. You know how the gospel begins. Herod the Great, killing all the children in the area around Bethlehem, and Jesus and his family becoming political refugees in Egypt. Religiously, culturally, and even geographically, as far away from Jerusalem as you could imagine. It was no doubt a stunningly breathtaking mix of power and politics and money and religion and sex, and people were drawn to it and confessed their loyalty to Pan as God and to Caesar as Lord, and reaffirmed their identities through a whole series of rituals. We have cultural rituals as well. We go through them, and as we go through them, we reinforce who we are. As a matter of fact, if you take a liturgy course with Kevin Livingston, you'll talk about the importance of liturgy in shaping our identity, how the word shapes who we are, how we see the world. Well, certainly there were other kinds of liturgies going on, shaping and reaffirming identity, loyalties, and allegiances. So here, in all, of all places, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And here we have Peter confessing for the first time, you are Messiah, the Son of God. So this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that that becomes clear and where that is stated. Now, we don't have Jesus entering into one of these pagan temples and overturning tables there. We don't have him calling down angels. None of the temptations that we see in the Lucan account that Jesus is subjected to in the desert. Uh, he simply asks this question, with, surrounded by this ragtag group of very simple fishermen and former repentant tax collectors. And here Matthew makes this confession. You are Messiah, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. In this pivotal place in the gospel, 
of Matthew. Matthew is giving us a major hint for his whole purpose. Remember at the beginning of the gospel as well, he's talking about Emmanuel, God with us, right? Right in chapter 1. And he's saying, this is how God is with us. Here he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, in this very simple, very unassuming way. And we have a clear hint that we're about to get a major redefinition of what power looks like, about the way God fights through love, through forgiveness, through sacrificial um, uh, grace. God is with us in this way. His power is not in armies. His glory is among us, not in temples. He's not building this new people on these rocks, on a temple on these rocks gushing with living water upon the land. He says to Peter, you, Petros, the Greek for rock, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So he's saying relationally with ordinary human beings. This is how I will build my new people with a new identity and a new citizenship that will trump all other loyalties. And the leader himself, what's this Messiah look like? It's curious. Right when Peter makes this confession, Jesus, or quote, uh, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering and be killed and be raised again. What is that for power? What kind of strategy is that? Peter says right away, God forbid it. Lord, you must, this must never happen to you. And then we have the harshest rebuke I think we have in Scripture. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And so then, the next couple of verses, he gives then a very critical lesson and instruction to these disciples who are now just figuring it out. And he says, if you want to be my followers, if you want to be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is absolutely critical for our understanding of soteriology when we think about uh, how God redeems us. Here in this critical juncture in Matthew's gospel, it's very clear the cross is also a critical hint for the way of Jesus. And he's making it very clear the cross is critical for Christian ethics. The way of the cross. This is how Emmanuel, God, with us, enters into and engages his context with the new kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. So it's an opportunity for us, you and me, to think about our identities and our confession of faith of Jesus as Lord and bring those, make, connect the dots and think about how that impacts the way we engage our context and the way we engage our uh, communities. It also should shed some light on for, for us about our, our, our own loyalties, our own passions. So um, let me give a, first a, an example from the history of the church, a, a more recent history. In 1934, in the, in the thick of 
of uh, rising national socialism in Germany, there were just a very, very few Christians uh, and even fewer theologians who said something is very wrong with the way the church is, is simply working with the regime. Karl Barth and a few others gathered and they wrote the Barman Declaration of, of, of Faith, a theological decla declaration. And what this declaration do, did, it's a confession of faith. It laid the foundation to, uh, or, or gave the tools and the leverage to, to really extricate the church from the web of national socialism that it found itself supporting. And, and it gives the church an opportunity to get clarity again. And so it begins in a very straightforward way. Jesus Christ, as he is, is attested to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. And as soon as you got that nailed down, you can go to the next part of the confession. Therefore, we reject the false doctrine that the church could or should recognize as a source any other events, powers, historic figures like Hitler, and truths as God's revelation. It might seem obvious to us now, but in that context, it absolutely wasn't amongst evangelicals, Catholics, mainline Lutherans. It was just, they were just so uh, enmeshed in this web and clearly, that's the case for us, too. We are, we, uh, Gary Nelson can talk a lot about the cultural context in which we are, in which we are born into, in which shape our identities. And sometimes it's not at all clear how this trumps this. And uh, a confession of faith should always be that opportunity that, or that, 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 that moment when we are when we have the leverage to extricate ourselves from this web of brokenness and sin that defines the whole fallen creation that God is redeeming in Christ. This is why Scripture speaks of conversion with such drastic metaphors: a dying to self, a raising to life, being born again, being rescued from the power of darkness, and transformed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Because it's, it's an it's a alternative kingdom that is being spoken of here in Scripture, a new politics, a politics of Jesus. Now, we could, that's, you could say that's the Gospel of Matthew. Do the other Gospels reflect that? We could work that out. Or even Paul. Paul does not seem so radical, does he? As the Gospel of Matthew with Sermon on the Mount and etc., and so that's why I thought I'd just make quick reference to the Colossians text as well, because, yes, he uses different language. He's not talking about Emmanuel, but he's certainly unpacking that same um, reality of God with us. Um, the language from that chapter 1, he is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And... Uh, Thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things have been created through him and for him. And all things hold together in him. 
Lord of Lord, King of Kings. A similar kind of confession of identity and, and uh, loyalties. And how did this all come about? Well, again, he doesn't use the cross language right here um, about picking up your cross and following, but he does say this. Um, first of all, God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And as a result, he tells the, the uh, church in, uh, uh, to whom he's writing, put to death what is earthly, greed, anger, wrath, slander. These are the things that are, are at the root of almost any armed conflict. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you too must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. And right at the end, he, oh, by the way, remember, I'm in chains. <laughs> He's a political prisoner at the time, right? Does Jesus' way, outlined here by Paul for the church, or Jesus' way of entering into Caesarea Philippi, or Jesus' way of entering Jerusalem and being killed, have anything to teach us today is the cross to be taken as seriously for Christian ethics as we do for the doctrine of salvation? What can we learn from the New Testament about our own engagement of our context with the good news of God's coming kingdom? So this is an opportunity, I thought, where I'd just say a little bit about uh, some of the opportunities and uh, choices that, that I and some of our churches in Stouffville had a year ago where we came into a very real conflict. You're probably thinking, Stouffville? What's happening in Stouffville? <laughs> uh, here's the background. When members of my faith community, the Mennonites, first came to Upper Canada, they settled not only in the Waterloo region, but they also settled in the Markham-Stouffville area. They also came uh, with a few others, Quakers, and also Brethren in Christ, Dunkers at the time. So Brethren in Christ, think of Meeting House, Bruxy Cavey, that group. Members of these churches came from the newly independent United States of America, and all of them were offered militia exemption on the basis of scruples of conscience. They were given this offer because John Graves Simcoe wanted them to settle the land. They, he desperately wanted the land opened up. He knew that they would come in clusters. They would, they would create viable communities, and then other immigrants uh, could come as well and, and settle the area. He knew that if they get militia exemption, they'd pay more taxes, and that would be good for the war effort too. And so it seemed to be a good, a good arrangement. All three of these groups are what we call historic peace churches. They simply refused to take up arms to kill the enemy. And Simcoe knew that, and he, was, and he made this arrangement. Their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord meant a commitment to love the enemy, to turn the other cheek, not to retaliate, because this is the way the Lord fights. The words of Menno Simon sums this up. True Christians do not know vengeance. And then last year, that, so that's the history. They came just prior to the War of 1812. There was virtually no one else in what, was, what today is our town of Whitchurch, Stouffville. 
Quakers to the north, solidly from Newmarket to Uxbridge. In the southwest, solidly brethren in Christ. To the southeast, solidly Mennonite. Virtually no one else. Then last year, our member of parliament came with a proposal to town council that we should celebrate our town's history in relation to the War of 1812. The proposal included a military parade with tanks, CF-18 flyovers, the bestowal of a military honor on a troop, which apparently had roots in our town, which was historically very inaccurate. He thought this would be a great idea, and so did the mayor. We could honor the troops, stoke civic pride, have a parade. And who doesn't love a parade? For us, for our churches there, we thought, if we are going to remember our town's history in relation to the War of 1812, well, there's only one story that, we're going to, that can be remembered, and that's the story of people who came there and who were just beginning to settle there, shaped entirely by their reading of Scripture, of what their baptismal certificate uh, was calling them to be and to do. If we were going to have this celebration, it would have to be in a commemoration of pioneers of Canadian conscientious objection to war. And so within a few days of this proposal being put on the website for um, town council meeting, uh, and I stumbled upon it because I look at stuff like that, uh, we had our congregation, other Mennonite congregations, the Brethren in Christ, they jumped in there with two or three feet in the Quakers. We were there, present. There's hardly anyone ever that goes to town council, but we were there, 70-plus people, old people, some of whom were conscientious objectors in the Second World War, women who were widows whose husbands... Uh, refused to serve and were imprisoned. We had children. We had complete families. Uh, we prayed before going. We knew what the story was. And it was very clear that, uh, okay, this isn't a church context, but that is the real history of the people who, who settled our town. And this proposal, with all the hoopla around it, was going to erase that story. It was simply going to erase that story and pretend that that wasn't part of what happened. And also, uh, it, would, it, it would imply that the contribution of Christians who have, you know, not just the historic peace churches, but many Christians across the board who, have, who, who, who work so selflessly to meet the needs of of those uh, who, ha who have been impacted by war. Just think of all of our church organizations now that are sending money to Syria and elsewhere where there are so many refugees. That's part of our town's history, and we thought we had to say something. Because for those who settled in our town, this trumped this originally. And yes, our town is very different now. But we thought too, you know what? What a great opportunity to say something about Jesus. Not everyone's going to, going to agree, but 
you know, we could make a historical argument because this is just the way it was. Time has passed, the parade happened, and we were there, you know, uh, present, all dressed in white. We had a little lapel pin uh, to remember is to work for peace. Uh, we did not disturb the parade. At least the CF-18 flyover was canceled. Um, and the mayor thought, well, you know, you can maybe get a plaque sometime if you really could get your act together, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so the parade happened. And um, I think we surprised the mayor by actually coming with a proposal for a plaque that we agreed upon. We checked it with the Heritage Advisory Committee, with the museum curator, with the town clerk, and uh, had another confrontation of sorts. Um, but they finally agreed. It was close to Christmas time. I think they wanted to end the council meeting early. And then we pushed a little bit harder. But we want the plaque on town property in the heart of the town. Mennonites didn't build churches. They met in meeting houses. So we don't have a place to put it. So we want it in town, right in the middle of town at the heart of the settlement, uh, original settlement. And we want to put on the, the town crest. Why? At the top of the town crest is a peace dove with an olive branch in its beak, reminding all of our residents that it was these historic peace churches that were the first settlers here. And by one vote, it passed. <laughs> so uh, we're having a peace festival on the UN International Day of Peace coming up in September. All the churches are excited about it. Uh, we're, we're trying to connect with the multicultural um, committee and, and trying to build bridges of peace in our town. We're going to have a high-level panel peace discussion. Uh, someone who, was, who, was, uh, who, was, who wrote the UN report on genocide in Rwanda and a few others that we're just finalizing as well. We've established a peace prize, a Stouffville Peace Prize at the high school. Some of you who know grade 10 history, civics, that's when they talk about 20th century uh, and uh, civic uh, uh, responsibilities. And it's an opportunity if, if a student wants to reflect on the peace heritage of the town or peacekeeping or whatever to uh, submit their paper and their history teacher will tell us who the winner is and they will get a small cash prize. So this is, this is just one small uh, encounter. The media, okay, the media was really interested in this because uh, for other reasons. We, we knew why we were doing it, but this was also a time when there was a lot of suspicion about the War of 1812 celebrations going on across Canada. Our MP was the Parliamentary Secretary for Heritage. He had budget, he had money, he wanted to do this parade. And we were probably one of the only communities in Canada where uh, there was traction in uh, in, in slowing things down at least. And so Globe and Mail picked up on it, CBC picked up on it, CBC Radio interviewed me on uh, Carol Off as it happens. Global TV, when they knew Prince, Prince Charles was coming to, to initiate celebrations at Fort York, they wanted for that item that night to pan from Fort York to Stouffville and, <laughs> and show our old ladies uh, quilting their quilts in the, in the thrift store, and so I invited them, and I, and I told them, these are our true radicals. Not me, these women. They've been doing this for years, sacrificially, and this, the money that comes out of this is going to 
to the direct benefit of people who are the, the victims of war. And so there were some interesting encounters. The largest, Gary might know this, the largest AM radio talk show in Saskatchewan wanted to interview. Too. So it was, it was very bizarre for us. Um, but it was an opportunity, at least in some way, to talk about the gospel and what it calls us to. And, that, and a reminder that there, Christians in the land at times are going to say, this trumps this. And that we will stand up and we will speak, even if there's a cost. So some of my learnings, and I will end with this. A, don't demonize. If you're involved, I hope some of you are at times. Don't demonize those people that you are engaging. The unredeemed principalities and powers of darkness run through all of us. We're still very much in the process of clothing ourselves with the new self, being renewed in the image of the creator, maturing in Christ. We had people that we disagreed with very sharply, who wielded power, had budgets. But it was very important to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This is the armor with which God fights. This is how he chooses to redeem the world, how he is with us. We need each other. That's the second learning that I had. You know, the Colossians text... Paul is penning that with Timothy at the end of the the text. He's organizing meetings. Introductions are made. He's networking with others. Uh, He gives instructions that the text be read elsewhere, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, too, you know, uh, connecting that with our own experience, I was never so aware of my need for the larger church as during that short period where we were in the spotlight locally and nationally. The need was uh, for co-workers around us, you know, no way I could have done this by myself or even our one congregation could have done this by ourselves. We needed co-workers. We needed perspective because we were drawn right into it as well. We needed prayer. We needed feedback. We needed a couple of good historians to do background work for us. We needed media advice, political advice. We needed support. We needed encouragement. We needed prayer. And we got that uh, from a whole variety of different circles. Many times we didn't know if we were on the right track. There were a number of different points where we could have made very different decisions. We didn't know if we were going too far or not far enough, if we were moving too fast or not fast enough. We were unsure about the shape of witness. To what extent does this trump this? And does it really apply in this case? But, you know, it's only a parade, right? How often did I second guess myself? But it was the local and broader church that helped discern at every juncture. Um, I'll name one individual from our, our community here, uh, Donald Gertz. He reminded me uh, that in scripture there are two, in Greek there's two words for time, which of course I know and I do this in other courses too. There's, there's chronos time, chronology, and there's kairos time. And chronos time, that's when we plan and do things in an orderly way and, and, and think through exactly what our strategy might be and think long term. But then there are these pregnant moments, these moments when the time is simply ripe, where the door is opened, and, and you have to speak, and it's easy to speak, and, and God is just calling you to enter into this. And so that's what, you know, our committee, when I shared that with them, they, they said, yes, that's what it feels like. We had Mennonite and Quaker and 
Brethren in Christ churches in Niagara area who had been planning for years. They got zero attention, media attention. But it was in Niagara where the skirmishes were happening. But it was in our town where all of a sudden this door flew wide open very, very quickly. And it was very clear, too, that we had that kind of a demographic. We had, you know, it was very clear to us, we had just these three groups here. And they were all peace churches. And so this was an opportunity to speak. We need each other. We need counsel from each other. Also, again, this is what, something I learned from Gary via our common program a number of years ago. Uh, information technology. Learn it, use it, know how to use it, know how to leverage it. Networking tools. There are many available and use them to communicate well and wisely. Paul, too, is using a sophisticated mail system throughout the Roman Empire. He's using different languages. In the 16th century, you have the development of the printing press. You know, that's what was a key part to making the Reformation happen. Well, in our little case, it's, not a, it's, not, it's nothing very significant, but it only happened because there were a number of us who were kind of fascinated at the time with Twitter because we saw the spring, the, the Arab Spring in Egypt and wondering, wow, how does this social networking tool work that it could be so powerful? And so by, when this happened, we had networks, we had followers, we knew how to use hashtags, and as soon as the right story was printed, right away uh, with the right link and hashtag, the Globe and Mail picked up on it in moments, and then the rest of the media kicked in as it happens, CBC, Global, etc. And then, and then uh, uh, it, it made national news. So, I mean, it's not necessary in all cases, but it's a reminder for the church not to neglect the tools that are out there, to know how to use them and to use them widely. Another learning, know what and of whom you are giving witness to and speak wisely. We do not preach an ideology, an ism over another ism, not even pacifism. We don't pit one political party over another. We point to the Prince of Peace, to Jesus. And as soon as a church links itself formally or otherwise to an ism, to an ideology or to a party, then it has lost its focus and it has lost its saltiness. Finally, know the gift that God has given you and don't despise it. Each of you come from different church traditions that have nourished over generations spiritual gifts. We all need them. That's one of the beauties being at Tyndale. Those gifts are around the table. You're, you've been shaped by communities who have, who have sung certain hymns, read scripture in a certain way, had certain historical experiences that the larger church can benefit from. And because we're transdenominational, all those gifts very often are around the table on any given night at, or day in, in, in class. Don't be embarrassed about your denomination or its tradition. And of course, there's lots we could be embarrassed about. But what is that spiritual gift that God has given that, that tradition that you should really acknowledge as your own and something that you can share? around the table. Know your spiritual gift and don't despise it. And know your community. Again, Gary will tell you, read Stats Canada. Know the statistics of the demographics of your, of your locality. If you don't know your locality, 
you don't know what the hurting spots are. You don't know where God is already at work outside the uh, uh, walls of the church. And you don't know how to use the limited energies that we have to engage our context with the good news of God's coming kingdom. Whether those are evangelisms of conversion, evangelisms of discipleship, evangelisms of justice and peace. That's one of the gifts I think our Mennonite community has tried to work on. Not always successfully, but we've felt a burden to explore that theme in Scripture and to raise it again and to um, remind the larger Christian community that there is something in Scripture about loving the enemy and that at times we really need to consider if, if that really trumps this when our nation calls us to identify someone as an enemy and to go to war against them. I want to leave you with that, uh, to consider that as we move into the, through the summer and into the fall. Uh, reflect on who you are, your identity, what has shaped you, and how the Christian confession of Jesus Christ as Lord uh, uh, trumps other identities and stories that have been co- become part of you, part of us. Let's pray together. I ask you to stand as I find my sheet, my last page. (laughs) God, God of life, God of life, lead. God of life, lead us. God of life, lead us to justice. God of life, lead us to justice and peace. Amen.